Cage, 3650, Physiology of Exercise, Lecture, Tuesday, September 21st, 2010, Fuel Utilization. All right, what do we need to know for class? What's coming up? Ah, quiz on Thursday. Pardon? I've, I've gotten a number of requests pleadings, etc. for another practice quiz. You've already had a practice quiz. You've already had a quiz. And I'll tell you, the second quiz will be in the exact same format as the first quiz. Okay? A couple of, you know, objective type questions, multiple choice, true, false, probably a short answer type question. Probably would be a good idea to be very familiar with characteristics of energy systems. Characteristics of energy systems. Bullet point characteristics of energy systems. How many questions? Five or six. I don't know, five or six probably. Does that start with anaerobic glycolysis? It does. It covers material from the last quiz until now, so it doesn't go all the way back. So the first quiz was pretty much up through um, creatine phosphate, right? So this one will be mostly glycolysis and what we've done to date on oxidative phosphorylation. Okay? It will include information from today's lecture. It may include information from today's lecture. Okay? Um, there, there are not specific questions about creatine phosphate on there that I recall. You'll have a chance to go revisit those on the first exam. Oh, and by the way, so, boy, now that we're getting along in the schedule here, the first exam is a week from this Friday, right? So we're, gonna, we're doing it in a little bit different format this time. We're not having the exam in here during class time. We're going to have the exam on Friday scheduled during your lab time period, okay? Um, I'll put out a reminder, but you will go to room 135 in the sports arena, okay? 135 in the sports arena. That's the classroom that's on the first floor by the KH office. So you'll come during your lab time. You'll take your exam there. Uh, it actually affords you a little bit extra time for the exam than we have scheduled for this classroom period. So um, we typically only have the classroom for an hour and 15 minutes. You've got at least an hour and a half by doing this on Friday. So you've got a little extra time, although hopefully you won't need it. Okay, question. The quiz will cover... <coughs> Uh, we probably are not going to get to carbohydrate metabolism today. We're going to start talking about fuel utilization. We'll do protein metabolism. We'll probably get, uh, we'll get to and maybe through fat metabolism. <coughs> no, I, I don't, if we don't talk about it in class, I don't ask you about it on, on exams or quizzes. Okay. Um, I, I typically do not give you X number of pages in the book to read and then questions from that pop up on quizzes or exams or PowerPoints or things that we haven't talked about yet. Uh, I typically don't put those typically don't put those on quizzes and exams. 
Depends on what kind of mood I'm in and how good y'all have been. All right. Um, We have talked about characteristics of specific energy systems. Creatine phosphate, um, glycolysis, oxidative phosphorylation. This, this next section still falls under the realm of oxidative phosphorylation because we are going to metabolize these nutrients using oxidative phosphorylation. Okay, um, But we are switching gears a little bit in that we're going to talk about some specific fuels to use uh, in this process. And so we'll start off with this, this sort of generic uh, fuel utilization. And again, this is, we started this way back with the beginning of oxidative phosphorylation where we know we can metabolize not only carbohydrates, but we can also metabolize uh, fats and proteins. Are we supposed to be... Yeah, that would be helpful, wouldn't it? <laughs> See, I just, I, I get, since I can write on this one, I just get used to looking at this one now and forget all about what you guys might be wanting to use. So let's try this. How's that? Is that better? Okay. Uh, this is your book's version of it um, where, where we've got carbohydrates and we've got fats over here and we've got proteins over here, but I've redrawn it. Um, I've redrawn it like this. Okay, so we'll get back to that one in a second. Okay. Um, this is an electron micrograph of skeletal or striated muscle. Um, you should be familiar with this. Um, from your basic physiology course. And so if we look at these myofibrils, uh, we know we've got a functional contractile unit of this muscle cell from here to here. What is that unit called right there? A sarcomere, correct. All right. And so we've got these dark lines in the middle and these lighter lines on the outside that overlap them. What are these dark lines? They're the myosins, the heavy, thick filaments that have the globular heads on them. The lighter, thinner lines that, that start here and overlap them are the actins. Okay, good. Uh, these are the Z lines that, that mark this, the, the borders of this sarcomere. Okay, and so this is where force is being produced. Okay, the myosin heads attached to the actins go through the power stroke uh, and create tension or force in this muscle cell. So this is where the energy is needed for force production. And is energy needed just for force production of muscle? What else is it needed for? For what? Detachment, or what's the other word we use for that? Relaxation. Okay? So we need ATP both for force production and for this detachment or this relaxation in this skeletal muscle. And so what we've got in this micrograph, one of the reasons that I like it is it's stained for some things. Uh, these little dark black granules right here that's glycogen. Okay, so those are little uh, groups or, or uh, uh, chains, if you will, of glucose molecules that are all stuck together uh, in the storage form of carbohydrate that we call glycogen. Okay, so that's our stored form of carbohydrate, and we see it's all stored right here where it's needed for energy. Uh, there are these organelles right here, some smaller ones, some bigger ones. Anybody want to hazard a guess as to what these organelles are? 
that might be energy involved in our energy process? These are mitochondria. Okay, so this is probably most likely a type two uh, or a type one, uh, uh, a slow twitch muscle cell, because it's got uh, a number of mitochondria. And we see that they are located right here close to where the force is being produced, where we need this ATP energy. Um, now, we've talked about so far how we can use glucose or glycogen through oxidative phosphorylation to produce ATP. So this glucose or this glycogen is going to go through glycolysis here in the cytosol. When it gets down to pyruvate, what happens to the pyruvate molecule? And how does it get to the Krebs cycle? If it goes through glycolysis here, we got pyruvate out here, what happens to it? It's got to go into the mitochondria where it goes to acetyl-CoA and goes through the Krebs cycle electron transport chain. Okay? So we can metabolize carbohydrate aerobically in these mitochondria. Uh, anybody want to hazard a guess as to what these things are? They look like clear droplets of something. Water. Not creatine, that's a good guess. Not water, that's a good guess also. What's another fuel source that we might store right in muscle? Fat. Okay. These are intramuscular, they're inside the muscle cell, intramuscular triglycerides. Okay. So the, these are uh, fatty acid chains and glycerol that are, that are stored right here in the muscle cell. Okay. Um, we can also metabolize amino acids or proteins, we don't really tend to, as we'll talk about in a little bit, we don't really store proteins in a certain way like we would use them like carbohydrates or fats to use for energy. We mostly take proteins and use them uh, for functional or structural things, but we can break these proteins down to amino acids and then those amino acids can be metabolized aerobically. Okay, So here you get a little bit of a view inside the muscle cell and where these energy sources are stored. It would still have mitochondria, just not as many. Okay, and not only not as many, but you—they uh, would be more in the range of this size, uh, or even, you know, this size up here, the one way. Come on, way up here, instead of these bigger ones. Okay. So there would be fewer, and what ones were there would be smaller. Okay, But again, even though we call our type 2 or fast twitch muscle fibers anaerobic, don't mistake the fact that they're totally anaerobic because they can still do aerobic metabolism, just not as well as type 1s. Okay? So they still have mitochondria, they can still do aerobic metabolism, just not as well. Alright, uh, quick overview on carbohydrate fat and protein. Uh, we've mentioned that, we've looked at this one before, but we've got a couple of added features here. So we eat carbohydrate, and you can eat carbohydrate in a variety of different forms. Simple sugars, complex carbohydrates, uh, a variety of different forms. Uh, absorption actually starts in the mouth, uh, uh, in the mucosa, but most of our digestion occurs in the stomach. Uh, foods are broken apart by mechanical action and by the action of these digestive enzymes and acids. Um, this mixture then goes into the small intestine and the vast majority of our carbohydrate is absorbed as simple sugars from the small intestine. 
Okay? Then they're taken through the portal circulation to the liver. And even if we do absorb some other simple sugars, pretty much by the time the liver takes care of this carbohydrate, it has converted everything to glucose. Okay? So you can eat a variety of different types of carbohydrates, but the body uses glucose as its form of carbohydrate. Some of this glucose will get stored in the liver as glycogen, and some of it will pass through the liver and will go as blood glucose. Okay? Uh, when we have elevated blood glucose, we know we get uh, secretion of some hormones like insulin that will then help tissues in the body like muscle take glucose up out of the blood, and if you're not active at the time, if you don't really need it uh, to use it for energy, we'll store it as muscle glycogen. Okay? Basic scheme of consuming, digesting, absorbing, uh, and storing carbohydrate. All right, fats are a little bit different. Uh, again, we know we can eat fats in a variety of different forms, mostly digested and absorbed, again, in the stomach. When we get into the small intestine, though, instead of being absorbed directly into the bloodstream, fats are absorbed into the lymphatic system, and they, they flow through the lymph uh, uh, vessels and then eventually are dumped into the bloodstream. Um, fat transportation, fat metabolism, fairly complicated. We're going to focus just on one aspect of it because this is the aspect that's most related to energy utilization. Um, fats that we consume and absorb are uh, typically in these long fatty acid chains. Okay, These long fatty acid chains. They are carried through the blood. You'll see this term free fatty acids or you'll see the abbreviation FFA for free fatty acid. It's a little bit of a misnomer because the fatty acids aren't just floating around free in the blood. To be transported through the blood they actually have to be attached to a plasma protein carrier. Okay, so. Um, these fatty acids, just, just as a note to everybody, if you do come late, don't knock on the door, okay? Um, all right, so these fatty acids don't just float free. They are transported through the body, attached to a plasma protein. Um, these fatty acids are then taken up by various tissues like uh, fat cells or adipocytes, and they are packaged in their storage form as a triglyceride. Okay, and as we talked about before, this triglyceride uh, is a glycerol molecule, and there are three fatty acids. Okay, so that's a storage form for fat. is a, is a primarily as a triglyceride. Questions. Is that related to when people have high cholesterol? Is it something like their muscles aren't storing that, that fat out of their blood? That's a, that's a good question and a simple question with a very complicated answer. Um, it, some people um, 
when they overeat fat and they overeat certain types of fat. Because what, I, what I've done is really simplified carrying fat through the blood as fatty acids. There are other mechanisms of carrying fat through the blood, and that is as these um, lipoproteins. So the lipid or the fat portion is, is uh, combined with a protein. And there are different levels of these lipoproteins uh, in, in transporting fat around through the body. Uh, some of them are helpful, the high-density lipoproteins, because they tend to take fat back to the liver for metabolism. Others, these low-density lipoproteins and very low-density lipoproteins, and what are called chylomicrons, are actually carrying fat out to the rest of the body to try for uh, the body to store. Um, if the body is having difficulty storing or metabolizing, you may see elevated levels. Okay, So it may be related to the amount of fat that the individual is eating. It may be related to the specific type of fat that people are eating. Um, a lot of people are very responsive. Their, their bodies... Um, serum cholesterol levels are very sensitive to the amount of animal fat or saturated fat that they consume as opposed to unsaturated uh, like oils like salad oil and that kind of thing okay so some of it's related to the amount of fat that you're consuming some of it's related to the type of fat you're consuming and some of it's related to some people's ability to metabolize and store the fat okay so it's a it's a pretty complicated issue and people have elevated cholesterol in some cases for different reasons. Okay. Um, okay. Then uh, when we want to use these fatty acids for metabolism, uh, well, in fact, we do take some of these fatty acids up into muscle. In fact, I should probably adapt this and make this. Um, we can take some of these fatty acids and store them as intramuscular triglycerides then when we want to use fats for metabolism we can break these triglycerides back down dump the free fatty acids into the blood send them around the body where they can be used by tissues in aerobic metabolism we can also do that in muscle um, this scheme is not as clear as it is with carbohydrate because okay, when we talked about carbohydrates, even if you've got high blood glu glucose in the blood and you're exercising, what form of carbohydrate does the muscle prefer to use? Prefers to use the glycogen that's stored in the muscle, right? Okay, even though blood glucose is high, it'll still pull from this, you know, initially. It, it doesn't appear that that's the same mechanism here, and we don't know why exactly. You've got these intramuscular triglycerides stored in the muscle, but it's not as clear as to where uh, you pull from here or you pull from out here when you're exercising. Okay, so it doesn't seem to work exactly the same way. They do. They do. And I'll show you some examples in, in just a moment. Um, oops. Okay, proteins. Similar scheme to carbohydrates in that we eat protein digested uh, in the stomach, uh, mostly absorbed as uh, individual amino acids from the uh, small intestine. Uh, these amino acids circulate around the body in the blood. 
where they're taken up by different tissues into what we'll see in a few minutes is kind of an amino acid pool in these tissues, and then we may do various things with them. We may synthesize them into proteins. Uh, we may metabolize these amino acids. We may do a variety of different things with them, and we'll talk about those in a little more detail in just a moment. Okay, so now we come to this scheme where we've got oxidative phosphorylation down here, and we can either do carbohydrate, fat, or protein, amino acid metabolism, um, and how they feed into oxidative phosphorylation. And we'll, we'll take each one of these in turn. Now, what I'm going to do first is jump to uh, protein metabolism, and, and because it actually doesn't make up a huge percentage of our metabolism during exercise. So I want to consider that one first and kind of get done with that one and put it aside, uh, and then talk about fat and we'll go back and forth between fat and carbohydrate metabolism because that's usually the big um, uh, issue during particularly aerobic exercise. Are we burning mostly fat or are we burning mostly carbohydrate? Okay, so let me jump to... Um, uh, no, let's just... Let's jump to protein. There we go. Okay. All right, well, we know that we can get proteins in a variety of different foods. They don't have to be uh, from animal sources. It doesn't have to be meat. You can get perfectly adequate protein from, uh, from plant sources. There, there are some things you've got to pay attention to, but um, we can get adequate protein from either animal or plant sources. This we've just gone through. Uh, so here's the basic structure of a, an amino acid. You've got this carbon backbone right here, uh, and the, each amino acid is distinguished by having this side chain. There's a COOH, this carboxyl group over here, but the thing that really distinguishes it as a protein or an amino acid is this amino group right here, this NH2. And this is the thing we've got to deal with when we want to metabolize these molecules. Uh, this is the thing that we cannot send through aerobic metabolism, so we either have to strip it, well we've got to strip it off and we've either got to get rid of it or transfer it to some other chemical um, and so this is the thing that for metabolism, whoops, I always forget to do that. So this is the thing right here that we either do what's called deamination or trans amination. Okay, it's an amino group, so we're going to either deaminate it by taking it off. And how do, how do we get rid of nitrogen in the body, primarily? How would we get rid of it? Mostly as urea in the urine. Okay? Um, we also get rid of nitrogen in, in, uh, through excreting it in our feces as well. Okay, so those are the two primary routes of nitrogen excretion. Um, or we transaminate by taking this, this amino group off and getting some other molecule to pick it up and take it. Okay? Um, some of the protein that you're, probably the majority of the protein that your body uses comes from outside, from exogenous sources, and that's from food that we eat. Okay? 
The body does a pretty good job of recycling some protein though um, because there are other enzymes and other protein containing secretions like some of our digestive enzymes and that sort of thing. Uh, there are also some dead mucosal cells that get sloughed off particularly in the GI tract and the body can actually take the, the protein, the amino acids that are available in those uh, uh, structures and recapture and reabsorb them. Okay. So the majority of our protein comes from our food, but we do recycle some of it in the body. Okay. Um, again, it's, it essentially passes through the liver, which is kind of our metabolic uh, gateway organ, um, and goes into this uh, metabolic pool, or this amino acid pool. Different tissues like muscle can take up these amino acids and use it, as well as other organs uh, can use these amino acids. And then... Uh, uh, we essentially lose protein through nitrogen, uh, through urine, in the urea, uh, through our feces, and we have some urea in our sweat, okay? So we do lose some in sweat. All right, well, here's how it might work in muscle, okay? You get these amino acids coming, coming down in the blood. They can get taken up by muscle, and they go into this sort of amino acid pool, if you're in what are called an anabolic state, okay, anabolic, that is you're in positive energy balance, okay, so positive energy, you are in positive nitrogen balance, and you've got the proper hormonal balance, you will take these amino acids and you will use them to synthesize proteins. Okay? There's many, 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 many different kinds of proteins that are used by the body. Um, just as an example, you might use these amino acids to synthesize contractile protein like actin, you might use it to synthesize um, uh, a regulatory protein like tropomyosin, okay? This de novo synthesis over here means that the body can take some chemicals and create amino acids from them, okay? That's why of the 20 amino acids that you have, a certain number of them are considered to be essential in that those are ones that we cannot synthesize, so you have to get those in your food. But the others, you can synthesize. If you've got the other proper chemicals, you can make these amino acids. So not all the amino acids have to be consumed. We can manufacture some of them in the body. So that's the anabolic side. Tissue building, we can construct uh, proteins, uh, we can construct amino acids, and we can construct proteins. Now, on the other side over here, if you're in a catabolic state, that tends to be more of a tissue breakdown. Exercise tends to be a catabolic activity. It puts the body in a state where we tend to break things down. We take glycogen and we break it down back into glucose so we can use it. We take triglycerides, we break them down into free fatty acids and glycerol so we can use it. 
we can take some proteins and break them down into amino acids and use them for energy. Okay, that it would be a catabolic state. Um, starvation is a catabolic state where you're in negative energy balance, you're in negative nitrogen balance, okay? Uh, and we'll look at some of the effects of that in a moment. Exercise is very similar to starvation from an energy uh, uh, and hormonal standpoint, okay? All right, so I gave you a couple of examples um, of amino acids. It's a little hard to read. This is alanine, okay, one of our amino acids. It's got, it's three carbons. How many carbons is pyruvate? Six. Nope. Three. Three, okay. Start off with glucose is six carbons, you get down to pyruvate, it's three. So alanine is three carbons, pretty much all you got to do is strip off the nitrogen group and turn it into pyruvate. Okay, so if you can strip off that nitrogen group over here, strip off that nitrogen group, you can send alanine to pyruvate, you can then send it through the Krebs cycle, and you can get 13 ATPs okay, by metabolizing alanine aerobically. Isoleucine. is what's often referred to as one of the branch chain amino acids. This is one of three amino acids that are actually metabolized fairly easily. Some of the other ones are not. This is metabolized fairly easily. It is six carbons, so you can take isoleucine. Well, if you're at pyruvate and it's three carbons and you go to acetyl-CoA, how many carbons is acetyl-CoA? You go from pyruvate to acetyl-CoA. How many carbons is acetyl-CoA? Six, two. No, two, because you lose, you lose a car carbon dioxide right here. Okay, pyruvate's three. Acetyl-CoA is two. So if you got six carbons right here, you can lop them off two at a time, turn them into acetyl-CoA, and so with one isoleucine, you can go around the Krebs cycle three times. Okay? Six carbons, send it to acetyl-CoA, you can go around the Krebs cycle three times. And so with isoleucine, if you can metabolize it, you can get 38 ATPs. Okay, not bad, fairly energy rich. The problem is you've got to do something with the nitrogen group. Okay, you've got to get that nitrogen off of there. Okay, so those are two examples of our amino acids. Here's all of them. So you can see where protein metabolism pretty quickly gets complicated because some of these amino acids can come in as pyruvate. Some of them come in as uh, acetoacetate. Some of them come in as acetyl-CoA. Some of them come in as oxaloacetate or other different areas of our Krebs cycle. Okay? So... Um, for the purposes of this class, the main thing I want you to just remember is, is two examples where you might come into this process in different places. Um, but this is just to give you an illustration of how complex uh, overall protein metabolism is. Okay? All right, now, um, 
With protein metabolism, there's really two major issues to consider and, and probably two major points I want to make. And that's amino acid use on an immediate basis during exercise, acute exercise. Okay? Because when you start exercising, particularly aerobic type exercise, you will start to mobilize some of these amino acids. Your body will metabolize aerobically some of these amino acids while you're exercising. Okay? Um, it is a fairly small percentage it's a small percentage of your overall energy use okay your use of amino acids will increase under fairly extreme conditions when you have particularly depleted your carbohydrate stores okay so, a couple of key points here. Let me just do this. Okay. Even at best, it's a pretty small percentage of the total of your energy supply. It is mostly used when extreme conditions result in carbohydrate stores getting really low. Okay, so towards the latter part of a marathon when somebody's kind of bonking or crashing, towards the latter part of a triathlon or ultra-endurance run, okay, particularly if people haven't been consuming enough, um, haven't followed a good strategy in terms of consuming energy during the event. So when people are getting carbohydrate depleted and the exercise is long and strenuous, then we'll start to use our protein metabolism a little bit more. Okay, but at most, you'll see some slightly different figures, but I'm pretty comfortable with less than 10%. Okay, probably at most, your total energy supply is going to be made up by about, uh, by protein, is going to be about 10%. Okay, usually way less, probably not very often would it be more than that, except for some more extreme conditions, which we'll look at in a, in a moment. Okay, now, here's the other issue, and that's this chronic issue. If someone does not consume enough protein over time, and if particularly they are physically active and exercise, they may fall into a chronic or long-term negative nitrogen balance. Okay, the way, the way we look at the, the adequacy of protein intake is by what we call nitrogen balance. You look at how much nitrogen goes in, and you look at how much nitrogen goes out, and if you're taking in more than goes out, that means more nitrogen stays in your body, and you've got adequate amounts of protein. If you've got more nitrogen going out than is coming in, then your body is losing or depleting its protein status. Okay? 
So how do you measure how much nitrogen goes in? If you're going to do a study, you want to make sure somebody's in nitrogen balance. How do you measure how much nitrogen's going in? What's our primary source of, of nitrogen or protein? Pardon? Food. Okay. So you've got to analyze people's food and see how much nitrogen is going in. How do we measure the nitrogen going out? Urine, feces, sweat. Okay. So you've got to do collections. You have to collect urine and feces and actually analyze it for the amount of nitrogen. Okay, and look at it, see if the person's in nitrogen balance. Okay, what this illustrates, and, and this is kind of unusual because we tend to, uh, which athletes do we tend to think about most in terms of being concerned to whether or not they're getting enough protein? Power athletes, bodybuilders, lifters, okay? This is actually a study with endurance athletes, and it seems that uh, endurance athletes on a relative per pound or per kilogram basis uh, have as much, if not more, need for protein than do strength and power athletes, okay? Because exercise is kind of like starvation. It puts us in a, a, a catabolic state, and when endurance athletes do a lot of training, they train for a couple of hours a day, they can get into negative nitrogen balance. And that's what this particular study is showing. This white line across here is nitrogen balance, this, these are athletes that are uh, training, and it's apparent they're not getting enough protein, and so they actually fall into negative nitrogen balance. Okay? So we want to make sure that athletes are getting an adequate amount of protein. And as it turns out, we need to make sure that that's true for endurance athletes, and it's also important for power or strength athletes. Okay. Here's an athlete that's in positive nitrogen balance. Okay, he's training, so there's some training stimulus for us to synthesize more muscle. Uh, he's consuming enough protein so that uh, he's in an anabolic state, and he can take that protein that's coming in and synthesize it into new protein and, uh, as an example, to add muscle. Here's an example of somebody who's been in negative nitrogen balance for long periods of time. Okay? Starvation, uh, essentially what we'll see is the body prefers not to use protein, particularly prefers not to use muscle uh, for energy, but in a, in a long-term starvation type cases, what happens is the person's not getting enough energy. They're not getting enough energy from carbohydrates or fats or proteins. So early on in this uh, period of time where they're not getting enough food, what happens to their carbohydrate stores, their stored muscle glycogen? Is it going to go down? It goes down. Is it going to come back up if you're not eating enough carbohydrate? No. Uh, what happens to the body's fat stores? If you're in negative energy balance all the time, you're going to start breaking down those fat stores, those stored triglycerides, to metabolize them for energy. But if you're still not meeting the body's energy needs, what is it going to do with stored protein in the terms of muscle? It's going to do that as well. It starts breaking down structural protein like muscle so that we can use those amino acids and metabolize them aerobically to try to generate enough ATP to keep the body functioning, okay? So we will use protein, 
but we really prefer not to. It's, it's not a, a fuel that we store like carbohydrate and fat. We can use it, but the body really prefers not to. All right, well, how much protein should you eat? Um, number one factor to remember with protein, uh, it really in any nutrient consumption, is not a percentage of your diet. Okay? It's not a percentage of your diet. Because if you're eating too many calories or you're eating too few calories, uh, you may be getting too much protein or too little protein. Okay? So what you want to do is you want to scale it based on your individual body weight. The recommendation for the average adult, and by average I mean sedentary, is 0.8 grams Okay, 0.8 grams of protein for every kilogram of body weight. Okay, 0.8 grams of protein for every kilogram of body weight. Now, if, uh, and as people are more active, the recommendation for protein goes up. So if adults are active, if they're exercising, um, then it goes up to point, from 0.8 to maybe 1 gram of protein per kilogram of body weight. As you can see, when we go to endurance athletes and then ultra-endurance athletes, that goes up again to 1.2 to 1.4, maybe as high as 2 grams per kilogram for ultra-endurance athletes. Okay? And then strength athletes, somewhere in between about 1.6 to 1.7, okay? Now, how much, all right, so that, that works out to be, um, you know, let's say you've got a, well, let's look at our example. Uh, this isn't in your slide pack. I just put it in there this morning to show an example, but I'll upload it later. So let's take somebody who's 200 pounds, okay? 200-pound football player, that's 91 kilograms, okay? So let's figure out how much protein this athlete should use. Okay, so we got 91 kilograms. All right, so let's even take the top end of this, and that's uh, 1.7 grams per kilogram. So let's take 91 kilograms, and we'll multiply that by 1.7 grams of protein per kilogram. That's 155 grams of protein. Okay, well give me a sense of that. Is that a lot? Is it not a lot? Is it a huge amount? Well, it's more than normal. But So if this is a football player who needs 155 grams of protein, is he going to be able to get this by eating a normal diet? Or does he need to like supplement with protein powders and all that stuff? What does he need to do? He needs to supplement. Okay. Well, let's take a look. This is a, a typical daily, uh, uh, daily food record. This is a 200-pound person. For breakfast, two cups of oatmeal uh, with non-fat milk, some raisins, English muffin, some margarine, uh, orange juice. For lunch, two turkey sandwiches, whole wheat bread, slice of Swiss cheese, uh, an apple, and some more milk. Uh, for dinner, he has fish, grilled, grilled fish, a baked potato, some broccoli, 
couple of fig newtons for dessert and some yogurt. Uh, for a snack, he's got chocolate milk, two bananas, and a power bar. Is that an unreasonable amount of food for a 200-pound exercising person? No. No. When, and and where, is he getting, uh, where is he getting protein in this? How about for breakfast? Where is he getting protein? Mostly from the milk. Most of the rest of it is carbohydrate, right? Okay, what about lunch? Where is he getting protein? Turkey, cheese, milk, a little, little bit in the bread, okay? Um, what about dinner? Obviously a, a fair amount here, okay? Actually a little bit in baked potatoes, believe it or not. A little bit of protein in baked potatoes. Um, not really in the broccoli or here. A little bit in the yogurt. Uh, milk again, not, much, not so much in the banana, a little bit in the power bar, okay? When you do the dietary analysis of this, this is 185 grams of protein, okay? Which actually, if you divide by his body weight, is two grams per kilogram per day. So by eating like this, is this athlete meeting his protein needs? He's, more, he's over, right? He's more than over. Does this athlete need to supplement with protein powder? No. Okay? So... Even strength and endurance athletes, uh, you, know, I, you know, we get hooked so much by a lot of the advertising, whether it's print media or stuff on uh, commercials on TV and that kind of thing. We get hooked on this idea or this notion uh, that the only way to meet our protein needs is by supplementing with these different products. Um, and this is an example. Now, there's some convenience that's associated with these protein supplements, but this is an example, and I, I think you all would, would agree, that's not an unreasonable amount, total amount of food. Right? Uh, some of you guys are out there going, so what else does he eat? <laughs> okay? Uh, and so this athlete easily meets his daily protein need just through eating normal food. Okay? So that's one of the uh, important points I want to get through to everybody is that the recommended amounts of protein are increased when you are physically active and when you exercise. But first of all, there's a bit of a limit. Uh, studies studies are, are, are not supportive of the fact of going over about 2 grams per kilogram. Okay, So more is not better. More is not more effective in terms of building muscle. And, and some of you might be saying, well, what about the you know, bodybuilder, a guy that's you know, 300 pounds is trying, add, trying to add a, a lot of muscle? The amount of protein is scaled to the individual's body weight. So if the person is bigger, what happens to the total amount of protein intake? It goes up. Okay? It goes up. So, a couple of key points. If you're physically active, if you exercise, protein intake requirements do go up to a limit. And the second key point is, those amounts still, for most people, can be pretty easily met by eating regular food and not by having the necessity to supplement. Okay? There was a question or comment. Yeah. Okay, well, you know, his diet, mm -hmm. actually, every nutritional needs, that he needs to hit that day mm -hmm. for each meal. Sure. Um, not realistic? Well, he's like that. <laughs> I mean, unless, you know, of course, the athlete that is. You know, has that access. Mm -hmm. um, but for an active adult, the, the kind of retrograde, um, you know, but not in training, okay. uh, they don't like that. Okay, well, first of all, if you take a regular adult, or, you know, typical adult who's not in training, first of all, you can reduce 
by 50% the amount of protein they need. Second of all, you know, let's think about this. Let's, you know, let's look at a typical day. Um, well, and, and this, gets, this gets into a whole other realm of things, but I think it's worth talking about because this is a good issue. Um, and how many, how many of you are taken or have taken the nutrition and physical fitness course over in the nutrition department? So some of this stuff kind of overlaps with that class. But this sort of gets into meal planning and how do you, how do you actually practically uh, implement this, these recommendations, okay? Uh, the first most important thing uh, and the first most important word of what I just said is planning because you can't get up in the morning and decide I'm going to eat healthy today uh, when you're, you're late to get your kid to school and then you've got to get to work or you've got to get to classes and you're on the run the entire day and you know if your day was like my day yesterday I wound up leaving here early having to go pick up my son because his high school is right by the place on the interstate where the airplane landed yesterday. So it took me about two hours out of my day to get there and get my son and get out of that area. Um, so there was a, in case you didn't see the news, there was an emergency landing of a small plane on I-85, uh, the southbound side just south of Shalliford Road. No, it wasn't a crash. It was an emergency. It was a good emergency landing. So it was not a crash in smoke. Um, but if you saw the helicopters buzzing around at about 5 o'clock, um, six o'clock. That's what that was going. That's what was going on. Okay, so you know, long story short, uh, crazy day. So here's what happens. So if you don't plan, you're you're screwed for the day, right? And you wind up running across the street, and and uh, the first thing you see in the the cafeteria up there is Chick Fil A, right? And do they have the grilled chicken sandwiches? Yes. Yes. If you ask for them and stand there and wait for them, yeah. right? Yeah. But if you're hungry and you got to be at class and you got a you know professor who gets mad when you're late, you grab the fried one, right? Okay. So anyway, if you plan, you get up in the morning. You know, if you don't have time to cook the oatmeal, breakfast cereal. You know, and then you get your breakfast cereal. You get your milk. Um, you know, you got to have food in the house. You got to have food in the house to make sandwiches, or if you don't, uh, you can go over here to Subway and get a turkey sandwich. Okay, so you you can do that. Um, you know, it gets expensive if you don't do this stuff yourself, but there are options. There are things that you can do. Um, so, I think people's biggest mistakes are they don't have the food available and ready for them as they head out the door in the morning, and then you're forced to make uh, poor choices and expensive choices as you go throughout the day. Okay, um, but if you get yourself, you know, kind of situated, and uh, I don't know if you have an office situation where you can pre-buy food and stash it in your office uh, drawer, a desk drawer, or in a little refrigerator or something, you're, you know, way ahead of the game. You know, and then and then you got, you know, you may not have fish, but one of the things you can do is you can get the frozen, you know, uh, chicken uh, fillet things, put them in the, the freezer. You get home, you take them out, they thaw them in a couple minutes, you throw them in the skillet, and you have grilled chicken instead of fish. You know, so it's it's possible. It just takes some planning and and uh, a reasonable approach. And and you know, so. Is, is there a certain amount of protein that you, the body can use in one serving? Yes. Um, and there's differences in protein in terms of bioavailability. Um, in, in, t 
typically uh, protein from animal sources is more bioavailable to the human digestive tract. Um, the protein that you find in uh, a lot of plant sources, as an example, is not as easily digested and absorbed, but you can still um, you can still digest and absorb it just fine. Typically, you just need to eat a little bit more of that food to get the... You, you can't look at the nutritional amount of protein and expect to get 100% from it, in other words. So you may have to eat just a little bit more because some of it's going to be eliminated. Okay? So, but, yes, if... And, and this is the... This is, the way with any of those three nutrients, carbohydrates, fats, or proteins, if you dramatically overeat in one sitting, um, the amount of amino acids or sugars or fats that can be absorbed as that food goes through the gastrointestinal tract is limited because most of these nutrients are uh, transported by protein transport molecules that are in the, the walls of the, the intestinal lumen. Uh, once those transporters get saturated, then the rest of that, that nutrient just continues on through the digestive tract and goes out in the feces. Okay, So um, that's another issue. Potentially you, you may not be, you look at your diet and you eat an amount where you've tried to count the number of grams of, of protein, but that may not be the number that your body is actually absorbing and using. Okay, So you have to be a little careful about that. Uh, different body types, different um, different amount of protein in grams that it absorbs so in order size. Because I've heard that it's 40 grams, but I mean, I guess if it was different body types, would that make a difference? Yeah, I mean, the, the easiest way to make it relative is by just overall body weight. But obviously there can be dramatic differences in two people that weigh the same, but one person may be a lot more in terms of lean body mass, another person more in body fat. And so it actually... For people that are obese, it probably overestimates the amount of protein that they need. But for people that are lean, you're still probably getting an adequate amount. Okay, so the 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 recommendations don't go up from here. They don't go up from here because somebody is leaner and has more muscle mass. This is you know if somebody's a strength athlete, a power athlete, you know involved in a sport. If they're lean and muscular, this is plenty, plenty protein. Okay, uh, there's, there's again, really the research is not good in terms of supporting the idea of of greater than two 2.0 grams per kilogram. The research is not really good on that. Okay, it just your body reaches a point where more is not used. Okay. I meant like in an actual, actual meal. Itself. Oh, in a meal. Um, say that again then. So like if you were taking in carbohydrates at one time, so you say at one time um, the body can only absorb um, so You're talking about mixed meals? No, so just protein in general. Okay. So you said you know, there's so many um, other compounds that take the protein to the muscles and the rest are out of the species. Right. So There's, what I've heard is recommended is 40 grams can be absorbed in the body per oh, 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 I see. Yeah, I mean, that's, I don't, to be honest with you, I don't know exactly, but that's, uh, first of all, I think it, it does depend on the person's body size. A bigger person basically has a bigger gastrointestinal tract. They're probably going to be able to absorb more than 40 grams of protein. 
Um, you took a, you know, you take somebody who weighs 98 pounds, that's probably way too much at one sitting. So that's probably one of those sort of very gross averages. Okay, uh, I, I would tend to think it would be more scaled on body size. Okay, all right. Um, we 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 tend, and I, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this because we, when we look at it as a percentage of your intake, we do tend to talk about um, protein being about 10 to 15 percent of our our intake, or 15 to 20 percent for strength athletes, but. Uh, by far, this is the preferred method. Okay, by far is this amount based on how big the individual is on their body weight. Um, okay, so I'll come back to the issue of bioavailability, particularly related to um, getting your protein, uh, meeting your protein needs by plant sources, which is perfectly fine. Because of the slightly lower bioavailability, you take those general recommendations and you add about 10% to it, okay? Just so that you overconsume by a, a small margin, because um, it takes into account this lower digestibility of plant proteins. Um, Got to make sure that total energy intake is sufficient. One of the issues that can arise or occur with people that want to be vegetarians is that they also uh, in a lot of cases, just don't consume enough total food or enough total energy, okay? Um, so not only total protein needs to be adequate, but total energy intake needs to be uh, adequate. And people need to emphasize uh, protein-rich vegetarian sources and also what are commonly called complementary uh, proteins like rice and beans, uh, to make sure that they, they cover all of those uh, essential proteins, okay? Or essential amino acids. All right, we talked about supplements, you know, marketed, 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 marketed. Uh, vast majority of cases, I would suggest they're, they're not needed. Okay, so that's protein. All right, so let's let's uh, talk about fats for a few minutes before we get out of here. Um, it's probably one of the most talked about topics in in uh, uh, nutrition, uh, both from the intake side and on the energy expenditure side. Uh, probably because it's uh, fat is one of those things that brings a lot of flavor and uh, satiety uh, to our foods. And so in this country, we tend to add a lot of uh, fat to our food. Even cultural dishes that are typically fairly low fat, we tend to um, uh, add a lot of fat to them. All right, this we've been through before. Again, very simplified. Eat fat absorbed in the, in the lymphatic system, then dumped into the blood, stored as triglycerides. And again, I want to uh, edit this one and... This includes being able to store fat. 
fats in muscle cells as intramuscular triglycerides. Okay, that we've covered. I'm going to jump over that. Okay, here's some examples of um, uh, fatty acids. These are three common fatty acids that the body will absorb and metabolize. Uh, we've already we've seen palmitate, uh, and I'll go back to that in a minute. But basically, what happens is you've got these long chains of fatty acids, okay? Uh, these long chains of carbons. Uh, palmitate or palmitic acid ten, is 16 carbons. Uh, these others, oleic and linoleic, are 18 carbons. So the fatty acids that we uh, metabolize in the human body are mostly either 16 carbons or 18 carbons. Uh, palmitic acid is a, um, or palmitate is a saturated fatty acid. And if you hear that term saturated, if you look at the chemical structure, you see all of these carbons, and every one of these carbons has a hydrogen bonded to it. Okay? So these carbons are saturated with hydrogens. So these saturated fatty acids, in this case, the 16-carbon saturated fatty acid is, uh, uh, comes from animal fat. And another way to recognize them is they tend to be solid. Okay? They tend to be solid at room temperature. Let's think a uh, tub of Crisco. Okay? These are unsaturated fatty acids over here because if you look down, these are 18 carbons. And if you look down our, our row like this, here we've got a place where there, there are no hydrogens because of this double bond right here, and so this is not fully saturated. And in this case over here, there's two places where that occurs. All right, So this is a monounsaturated fatty acid, and this is a polyunsaturated fatty acid. Okay? Um, these tend to be liquid at room temperature, like oils that you see, like uh, safflower oil, canola oil, uh, etc. Okay? Um, this is a triglyceride where we have just taken these fatty acids and we have connected them to a glycerol molecule down here. Okay? So this is a triglyceride three fatty acids and a glycerol molecule. That's the storage form. Okay, so here's a fat cell. Here we've got these triglycerides. When we want to use these triglycerides, we break them down. We use these uh, uh, enzymes here. We break them down and release the fatty acids. Okay, so here's one fatty acid. Uh, here's the glycerol molecule, and here's these two other fatty acids. These fatty acids go out into the blood where they are bound to plasma proteins, and then they circulate around the body. Okay? So triglycerides are stored in the fat cell, broken down into the glycerol and the three fatty acids. Three fatty acids go out into the blood where they circulate around and can be taken up by tissues and metabolized. Okay. Once, uh, let me see. Okay. So here's our mitochondria. So let's do it this way. Here's our mitochondria like this. So we've got this fatty acid. Okay, it's taken up by this muscle cell. So when it gets down to here, it's got to be transported across this mitochondrial membrane. Okay. 
And on this scheme right here, here's the mitochondrial membrane, and so here's our fatty acid, and so there are these transport molecules or mechanisms that help transport these fatty acids into the mitochondria. Okay? Um, question? I had a question. According to that last slide, adrenaline was the cause of the release of those fatty acids? It is one of the things. Epinephrine is one of the things that can cause fatty acids to start breaking down. Yes. Okay? So epinephrine or adrenaline, when, when is that released in the body? When you work out or under some kind of stress, is exercise a stress for the body? Yes. Most definitely. Causes the adrenal glands to secrete epinephrine. Epinephrine circulates around in the body. It interacts with, it interacts with these um, uh, receptors on fat cells and sets off this chain of events that causes this to be broken down. Okay? So when you exercise, it's a stress. You release epinephrine, and that tells the body, you know, the body's going to need more energy, and so it starts to break down this stored energy source to release these fatty acids so the body can start to use them for energy, okay? All right, the, the, the reason that I put this in here is there is a transportation step where these fatty acids have to be transported from the cell uh, uh, cytoplasm into the mitochondria. Okay, so there's a, there's a transport step. Now, once it gets into the mitochondria, here, so here's palmitate, our 16 carbons, it goes through this process of beta-oxidation. What is beta-oxidation? It's essentially four additional steps that we take this long carbon chain, how many carbons is acetyl-CoA? Two. We take this 16 carbon chain and we lop off two carbons at a time, okay? So we lop off two carbons at a time and we send it to acetyl-CoA. So that's basically, in, in a nutshell, that's what beta-oxidation is. You just take this long fatty acid chain you lop off two carbons at a time, and you send it to acetyl-CoA. And once it goes to acetyl-CoA, then it can go through the Krebs cycle, electron transport chain, and produce lots of ATP. Okay? If you take this one palmitate molecule, this one fatty acid chain, and metabolize it completely, aerobically, it's 129 ATPs. Okay? So fat is a very rich source of ATP energy if you can metabolize it, okay? And if you can metabolize it quickly enough. That's key. Um, I'm going to skip over this one for right now. Let me jump back to... Let me jump back to... Uh, the fuel utilization, where we left off in the fuel utilization, which was right here. All right. Well, how do we tell what kind of, what, you know, where the fuel is coming from during exercise? With uh, protein, it's pretty difficult, um, and there are some pretty sophisticated. Uh, radioisotope tracer methods that can be used. 
But in a typical lab, what we do is we can, we can tell, at least between carbohydrate and fat, we can tell what fuel is being utilized by measuring what's called the respiratory exchange uh, ratio, or RER. And so we've got our athlete hooked up to our metabolic cart, okay, as we talked about uh, last time or time before. He's breathing in room air, and as he's uh, exercising, he's, all of the air that he's exhaling is going into the metabolic cart over here. Here's somebody on the uh, uh, treadmill doing the same thing, breathing in room air. Everything he exhales is going into the metabolic cart. Okay? Now, this respiratory exchange ratio with that metabolic cart, we can measure how much oxygen is being consumed and how much carbon dioxide is being produced. And this respiratory exchange ratio is the proportion of carbon dioxide that is being produced to the amount of oxygen that's being consumed. Now, why does that make a difference? Here's palmitate. It's got 16 carbons, but the structure of palmitate only has two oxygens with it. Okay? So in order for us to fully metabolize this palmitate, we've got to bring in a lot more oxygen. Okay? We've got to bring in a lot more oxygen. So if we look at the relationship between how much oxygen is consumed to metabolize this to how much carbon dioxide is produced, for every palmitate molecule we produce 16 CO2s and we consume 23 O2s. <laughs> So 16 over 23 is 0.7. So you, put, you hook the person up to the metabolic cart. You measure how much oxygen they're consuming, how much carbon dioxide they're producing. You do the math, and you look at that ratio. If the person, let me jump forward, if their respiratory exchange ratio is at about 0.7, the assumption is all of their energy is coming from metabolizing fat, and none of it is coming from carbohydrate. Okay? Now, conversely, if we look at carbohydrate or glucose, it's got six carbons and it's got six oxygens with it. So the molecule itself is bringing more oxygen into metabolism, so you don't need to consume as much. So for every CO, six CO2s you're producing, you're only consuming six O2s. So the ratio is 6 over 6, or it's 1. So we go back to our chart. If our respiratory exchange ratio is 1.00, then we're getting 100% of our energy from carbohydrate and 0% from fat. Okay? So if we do this with somebody who's at rest, um, we put them in a nice uh, recliner, we have them rest, we measure their oxygen consumption, their carbon dioxide production. For most people... If you're just sitting there nicely at rest, your resting RER is about 0.75. Okay? About 0.75. So what's the proportion of fuel mixture that you're using when you're at rest? Carbohydrates about 15% and fats about 85%. So most people when you're sitting at rest you're, burning, you're getting about 85% of your energy from oxidizing or metabolizing fat and about 15% from carbohydrate. Okay? That's at rest the moment you get 0.70. Yeah. 
Um, when you're at rest after you've eaten a diet like an Eskimo for about a month. When, when you eat a really high-fat diet, okay? Or a, ke a ketogenic diet, basically. Um, if you severely limit the amount of carbohydrate for long periods of time, your body will adapt by metabolizing more fat, okay? Um, and your RER will go down. But typically, there are tissues in the body, like your brain is an example, that still really need glucose. And so your over total body metabolism is never going to be totally 100% fat oxidation. Okay? Um, uh, or if it were for periods of time, you'd, you'd probably be in, uh, uh, in such severe ketosis that you'd have severe headaches and life would not be any fun. Okay? Um, so your body will adapt. I mean, that's a good question because your body adapts to your diet to some extent. You eat a lot of, you eat a high fat diet, you force the body to metabolize more fat, your resting RER will be lower. If you eat a high carbohydrate diet, what's going to happen to your resting RER? It's going to go up. You force the body to metabolize more carbohydrate because you limit the fat uh, in the diet and your RER actually goes up a little bit. Okay? So your, your, your chronic diet can, can influence that. Okay. Um, just real quickly before we go, this is what happens with exercise, okay, with exercise. At, from every moment, so you're laying on the couch, from every moment, let me go back to here, every moment that you get up and start moving and then start walking a little faster and then start walking a little faster and then start jogging and then start running, your RER goes up, okay? So as soon as you get up off the couch and start moving, your RER goes up. If you start walking briskly, your RER goes up further. If you start jogging, your RER goes up further. If you start running, your RER goes up even more. What does that tell us about the proportion of fuel that we use between fat and carbohydrate as our activity level goes up? More carbs, less fat. Right? More carbs, less fat. Now, this is the genesis or the idea of this notion that's called the fat. Here, I'll just do it on here, which I love to talk about. Which is with exercise is this fat burning zone. Right? How many of you have heard of the fat burning zone with exercise? The intensity that you burn more fat, right? You can go to the rec center and you can get on the treadmill and you look on the treadmill and what's one of the pre-programs on there? Fat burning. Okay? So, uh, fat burning is a big issue related to exercise because most people who want to exercise and lose weight, they what they really want to do is lose fat, so they want to burn fat. Okay? Is that exercise intensity high or low or somewhere... Where, what, what kind of intensity is fat burning? It's very moderate to low, right? So this fat burning intensity or zone is low to moderate. Next time we will talk about why that is a complete mistake. <laughs> complete mistake. So if you want to know why, make sure you're here on Thursday after the quiz.